Okay, we're going to be looking at verses 49 to 56 of Psalm 119, and then at verses 57 to 64. In verses 49 to 56, uh, there are two important words, I think, that we should notice. The first word is remember. The word occurs three times in the stanza. Verse 49, remember the word unto thy servant. Uh, Verse 52, I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord. And then verse 55, I have remembered your name, O Lord, in the night. And the second of the two words is the word comfort. First in verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction. And then in verse 52, I remembered your judgments and have comforted myself. And I think that word comfort uh, captures the main idea of the stanza. The, uh, it's a prayer about the comfort he has received by remembering the judgments of the Lord. Now, in looking at the stanza, we want to see, I think, three things. First of all, his trouble. Secondly, his comfort. And thirdly, his thankfulness. So let's look first at the, at the trouble as he describes it here. We, we've talked about the fact that this is a psalm that uh, uh, was written in the context of trouble. And we've noticed in preceding stanzas that he talks about the reproach of his enemies. Well, he doesn't use that word reproach here in this stanza, but he does nevertheless talk about his enemies and he does talk about some of the troubles he has had. Um, the first indication of his trouble is found in verse 50, where he says, this is my comfort in my affliction. So it's uh, affliction that is troubling him, and he is uh, finding comfort in that affliction. That word affliction is a word that usually means in the scriptures, Affliction that's caused by someone else. Just to give you one example of it, though there are many of these, in Genesis chapter 16, verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, that's to Hagar, Behold, you are with child and shall bear a son and call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. And the affliction of Hagar was, of course, that she had been driven out of Abram's house by Sarah, Abram's wife. So that's the first indication of the psalmist's trouble here, that he talks about his affliction. The second indication is found uh, in verse 51. The proud have had me greatly in derision. And this word proud is a word that's also occurred earlier in the psalm, verse 21. We talked about it there. Now, you have rebuked the proud, the cursed, who go astray from your commandments. And we saw when we looked at that word, uh, proud there, that it has three elements. The pride of these people has three elements to it. Presumption, they are acting outside uh, the boundaries established for them by God, assuming an authority for themselves which they don't have. In this case, I think we may say that the authority they're assuming is the right to criticize uh, God's saints, 
They are, uh, so that's one element, presumption. Uh, they are acting in rebellion against God, and they are acting willfully. They are uh, not submitting their wills to the will of God, but are acting according to their own wills. And the psalmist actually continues to uh, talk about this subject of uh, pride in other parts of the psalm too. If you go on to um, verse 69, you find it again. The proud have forged a lie against me. So there you have him speaking of the same people, I think, this time uh, saying that they are forging lies against him. In verse 78 again, let the proud be ashamed, for they dealt perversely with me without a cause. Verse 85, again, the proud have digged pits for me, which are not according to your law. And verse 122, as well, let not the proud oppress me. So this, again, is one of those characteristics of the enemies. One of the things that troubles him, especially, is their reproach. He's talked a number of times about their reproach. He uh, is concerned also about the pride that they show in their uh, work against him. So that's the second element of his suffering. The proud hold him in derision. They mock him, they scoff at him because of his righteousness. Now the third element in his suffering is um, found in uh, verse 55. I'm sorry, not 55, 53. And and this is a little bit surprising, I think, um, because I, I don't think here he's talking about any direct effects of the wicked on himself. He just simply says, indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. And I don't think he's indignant on his own behalf. He's not talking here about uh, the wicked forsaking God's law and attacking him especially, and that he's indignant at their attack on him. No, he's indignant on behalf of God. And he sees that these wicked people are uh, dishonoring God by their behavior, by their forsaking of his law. And he's indignant In in fact, you might even say he's enraged because they are forsaking the law of God. I think we can understand this in our own time. It it happens to us. We look at some of the tremendous wickedness around us and we become indignant, uh, righteously indignant against the uh, dishonor that's done to God because of the wickedness of these men. So that's an element also in his suffering, his indignation on behalf of the God who is being dishonored, his God who is being dishonored. And then there's one further indication of his suffering in verse 54, where he talks about the house of my pilgrimage. We talked about that uh, idea of uh, pilgrimage or sojourning before. It has occurred in an earlier stanza. And it has its positive side, of course, a very uh, important positive side to this idea of sojourning. It's uh, the idea that we are separate from the world, that God has called us out of the world, that we don't any longer belong to the world, that we have no part in the world's wickedness, and therefore 
because of the grace of our God, we will not perish with the world. And we have uh, a citizenship in heaven. That's a, a very important and positive part of this sojourning. And it's present here. But there's also a negative side to that sojourning. And that negative side is that we're not in our native country. We're in a foreign country. And waiting and hoping for the time when we will be able to go to our native country. And because we're in a foreign country, the citizens of that country also hate us and persecute us. So those are the elements of his suffering here in this particular stanza. In this suffering, then, he has turned to the Lord and he looks to the Lord for comfort. That's where we want to focus our attention now, how he finds his comfort in these, uh, this affliction that he talks about. And the, the first thing he does is pray. Remember the word to your servant on which you have made me hope. That word means, I think here, especially promise. Remember your promise to your servant. The promise of God is what he Uh, sets his hope on, and that promise has to do, of course, with the future, with his native country, and with his um, uh, citizenship in that country, with the fact that God is his God, and that he wants to be walking with that God. Remember that word, he says, which you have spoken to me, and he doesn't mean uh, that God has forgotten it, and that he wants God to call it to mind again. What he means here really is Uh, bring it to my mind, reaffirm it to me, let me know again or hear again that word of promise. Because that promise, that word is that on which I have placed my hope. There's my hope. And in his affliction, therefore, he wants the promise of God. The promise of God is the answer to the affliction, the comfort in affliction. The second part of his comfort then he talks about in verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, for or that your word has given me life. That your word has given me life. So he's uh, not only looking to the future, to his hope in the future, but he's also saying here in the present I have comfort as well. Your word That is, your promise, same word is found in verse 49, has given me life. Peter talks about that life in 1 Peter 1, verses 23 and following. I'd like to just refer to that because Peter not only talks about the life there, but he talks about the means of that life, which is the word of God being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, the flower of it falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So that's the second part of his comfort. 
The word of God has given him life. For the present, he walks in death, in the midst of death, among enemies who seek his death, and the word has given him life. Men find comfort in many things, of course. They find comfort in money, they find comfort in friendship, they find comfort in family, they find comfort in power, they find comfort in all kinds of things, but the comfort uh, that we have is the comfort for the great enemy that we face, the enemy that is death itself. The Word of God gives us life, though we deserve death and were, in fact, dead. The, second, the third part of his comfort, then, is in verse 52. I remember your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Now, this idea of judgments here is something that we have to talk about, I think. He's obviously referring to the law. I remember your judgments. And he's saying, very remarkably, that he is comforting, comforting himself with the remembrance of that law. He's changed his focus here. If in verse 49 and 50, he's talking about the promise especially. Here he's changed his focus. You can't make the word judgments mean mean promise. He remembered the judgments of the Lord and he comforted himself from those judgments. Now, the judgments of the Lord, when we think about the judgments of the Lord, that's a specific way of looking at the law of God. I think we should see that first of all. It's uh, first of all looking at that law of God as his judgments or his determinations about right and wrong, about good and evil. In his law, God says, this is what is right, this is what is wrong. This is righteousness, this is wickedness. That's his judgment in the first place, the Lord's judgment. But they are called his judgments also because then those uh, determinations about right and wrong are applied to us and the uh, standard that God has established by his judgments becomes the means of our judgment, either for punishment, if we have done wickedness, or for reward, if we have done righteousness. So this word judgment then extends into the impact that the commandments have on our lives. And of course, the, the striking thing here is that we are all sinners, and we are all subject to the judgment of the law, to the judgment of death. And yet the psalmist says, I take comfort in your judgments. I remember those judgments, and I comfort myself. And the only way, of course, that we can do that is in Christ. We can take hold of the righteousness of Christ as our righteousness. And we can say, I remember your judgments and I comfort myself because 
Those judgments now as they apply to me in Christ are the judgment that I am righteous and worthy of life. So he comforts himself in that way. He comforts himself also in seeing the impact that those judgments must of necessity have on his enemies, on the wicked who forsake God's law. Those enemies are subject to those same judgments and those same judgments that uh, are justifying him through the righteousness of Christ are condemning his enemies. So the fourth part of his comfort then is in that statement Um, that uh, in verse 54 thy statutes, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage he's a sojourner in the earth his enemies are attacking him and what's his response to his enemies to sing about the statutes of the Lord Because these statutes, he finds in these statutes comfort for himself. Comfort as those statutes had been fulfilled for him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the statutes of the Lord are a good for him, a joy in his life, a thing he delights in. A thing he wants to understand more of. Those statutes then also show him the right way and show him a safe way to walk here in this dangerous world. They are the path, the safe path on which his feet must walk while he is here. And while he walks on that path, death cannot touch him. Now he also says then in verse 56, this I had because I kept your precepts. The question, of course, is what does the word this refer to? And I think that what the psalmist is doing here is deliberately by that word this, taking us back to verse 50, where he uses the same word. This, he says in verse 50, is my comfort in my affliction, This I had, this comfort in my affliction, I had because I kept your precepts. It does not mean that his uh, keeping of the precepts merited comfort. But what he means is that that comfort is not possible outside the way of God's precepts. It's possible only as he walks in that way. Whenever he forsakes that way, that comfort will forsake him. While he walks in that way, following the Lord Jesus Christ along his way, then he has that comfort. So that's the the comfort then, the elements that belong to his comfort. And finally, we have his thankfulness. There are just two things here, I think. First of all, in verse 51, the proud have had me greatly in derision, yet I have not declined from your law. 
for I have not uh, gone astray from your law. He uh, says that the proud of deriding him, mocking him, and the purpose of their mockery is to turn him aside from the commandments. They are tempting him, deliberately tempting him, and seeking to undermine his faith and to uh, make him join them or perish in uh, unrighteousness. And he says, whatever they do, whatever uh, they bring against me by way of their derision, I will not, I have not declined from your law. Your law is still my guide. Your law is still my standard. I will continue to hold to it, and I will continue to hold to it because it is my comfort. And the second uh, part of his thankfulness is then in verse 55. I have remembered your name, O Lord, in the night, and have kept your law. Notice he said in verse 52, I remembered your judgments. Now he says, I remembered your name. And he means he's remembered the fullness of the revelation of the Lord to him, so that he knows the Lord, he knows the Lord's promises, he knows the Lord's works, he knows the Lord's character, he knows everything that the Lord has told him in his word, and he remembers this, he recalls it to his mind even in the night, perhaps he refers to the night here because his enemies have made him anxious and he is having some trouble sleeping. Um, whatever the case may be, he comforts himself and he remembers his thankfulness in the night by remembering the name of the Lord. And remembering the name of the Lord, that full revelation of the grace and salvation of the Lord by keeping his law. Now let's... Uh, wrap this section up by looking at its application to our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've done before. Um, our Lord also, of course, was derided by his enemies. There's a very powerful example of that in Matthew 27, when he was being crucified. Matthew 27, verses 39 and following. Those who passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the elders, the scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. That's bitter mockery, bitter derision, indeed, that our Lord suffered there at the hands of his enemies. But in his affliction, he too remembered the commandments of his God, was obedient to those commandments of God, kept them, observed them faithfully, and comforted himself in that, those judgments of the Lord. And it's because he has done so that we can do so also. So let's uh, go next to verses 57 to 64. 57 to 64. And I think the main idea here is expressed very neatly in verse 57. You are my portion, O Lord. 
I have said that I would keep your words. We should notice that the stanza falls into two clear parts because of rhyme in the Hebrew. The first four lines, the first four verses all end with the same syllable. And then in the second part, the last four verses, the uh, rhyme scheme is that the first and the last lines, 61 and 64, rhyme and verses 62 and 63 rhyme. And the division here, I think, is that in the first part, he is explaining what it means that the Lord is his portion. And then in verses 61 to 64, he's dealing with some other matters associated with that whole idea of the Lord being his portion. And there are several of those matters that he talks about there. We'll get to the individual Uh, ideas as we come to that second part of the psalm. So we're going to look first at what he means when he says, you are my portion, O Lord. Then we're going to look at what he means by when he says, I have said that I would keep your words. And then we're going to take verses 61 to 64 together for our third uh, point here. You are my portion, O Lord, is where we begin That word, portion, really means uh, assigned share in the scriptures, assigned share. You find it in uh, verse uh, 24 of Genesis 14. This is just one example of its um, general use in the scriptures. Abraham has gone out and rescued Lot from uh, Cheddar Laomer, and he had received some help from the king of Sodom and some others, Uh, in that general area. And as he's returning from rescuing Lot, he's offered a a portion, a share of the spoils they've taken in this battle. And he refuses it, except, he says, save only, except only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Ashkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. That's the word. That is the, the portion that's due to them because of the help that they gave in this battle, the, the share that belongs to them by right. But this word then is a word that is frequently found along with the word inheritance in the Old Testament. And it applies to the inheritance and the portion of the people of God in the land of Canaan. In Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, Genesis, uh, uh, Numbers 18, verse 20, God is talking uh, to Aaron here, or about Aaron. The Lord spoke unto Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. So the Lord says to Aaron, you don't get any uh, inheritance of land in the um, land of Canaan, the land of promise, because I am your portion. But then uh, we find, as we go on in the scriptures, that this same uh, word, uh, the same idea is applied to all of God's people. He's not just the portion of the priests, but he's the portion of all of his people. Psalm 16, verse 5 is one of them. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance 
and of my cup you maintain my lot. Psalm 73, verse 26, those last uh, few verses of Psalm 73 are very beautiful verses. Uh, Psalm 73, verse 26, in this case, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is my portion, he says, even though my my, uh, flesh and my heart fail. Psalm 142, verse 5, is another one that mentions this idea. The Lord is the portion of his people. I cried, I cried unto you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. And just one more in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 10, verse 16. Jeremiah 10, verse 16. The portion of Jacob is not like them. For he is the former, the maker of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. So the Lord is the portion of his people, and here the psalmist confesses, You are my portion, O Lord. And this is uh, the great joy, the great blessing of my life, that you are my portion. It's a permanent, a lasting portion, a portion that cannot be taken away from him. And it's a portion that belongs uniquely to the Israel of God. It's a word that occurs in Nehemiah 2, verse 20. Nehemiah 2, verse 20. Uh, Some wicked men have come and these wicked men are interfering with the building of the wall and when it's, uh, they discover that they can't stop it, then they say, well, we'd like to join you, uh, Nehemiah, undoubtedly to uh, interfere even more with the work. And his answer to them is, the God of heaven, he will prosper us, therefore we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. So his answer to them is, you have no portion with us. This is a portion that belongs to us, not to you. And, of course, the scriptures talk about the portion of the wicked in other places as well. Psalm 17, verse 14, is one. David there asks the Lord to deliver him from the wicked, from men which are your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They are full of children and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. So he says, you are not their portion. Their portion is in this life. And the portion that they have is a portion that they will not keep. They cannot hold on to that portion. They have to pass it along at the best to their babes. Their portion is a portion which does not last. One more uh, aspect of this whole question then is that not only do the scriptures speak of the Lord being the portion of his people, but they speak of us as being the Lord's portion. Deuteronomy 32 verse 9, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. And again in Zechariah 2, verse 12. Zechariah 2, verse 12. 
The Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the Holy Land and shall choose Jerusalem again. So the Lord is our portion and we are the Lord's portion. We have joy in the Lord because he is our portion. He has joy in us because we are his portion. This is a joyful confession that he makes, therefore, when he says, you are my portion, O Lord. This is the great joy of his life. And, of course, a part of the comfort that he has when his enemies attack him. Though that does not enter so much into this stanza. The second thing we want to pay attention to is the second part of that verse and then the rest of the first half of the stanza, which all uh, tie together. He says in the second part of verse 57, I have said that I would keep your words. He refers to a vow he made in the past in response to you being my portion, I said. I would keep your words. This is the appropriate response we make to the Lord becoming our portion. He is our portion. We respond by saying, I will keep your words. And here he refers to a vow made in the past and he reaffirms that vow now in the present. He says, I will continue to keep your words. So the Lord is his portion by his promise. He returns a promise to the Lord in response to that promise of the Lord to him, I have said that I would keep your words. But then notice how he develops this whole idea of keeping the word in verses 58, 59, and 60. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful unto me according to your word. So he asks the Lord for his grace. He asks for his um, favor to come to him according to his word. And he tells us exactly what is the nature of that favor, I think, in, that he seeks in verses 59 and 60. I thought on my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. So he considered his own ways, he looked into his own heart, and he looked at his own behavior in the light of the law of the Lord. And he said, not anymore. I'm not going to walk that way anymore. He turned his feet unto the testimonies of the Lord. He said he would keep the word. He entreated the favor of God. When that favor came to him, he thought on his ways and he turned his feet to keep the Lord's testimonies. And in doing this, then, he made haste. Verse 60, I made haste and delayed not to keep your commandments. So he talks about what he said, what he had promised in the past. He talks about the request he had made to the Lord, be merciful to me. He talks about what he thought in his own mind, what he did with his feet, he turned them, and how quickly, how urgently he did this. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. And all of it, you see, that whole of his response to that great blessing that the Lord is his portion relates to the law. I said I would keep your law. I asked you for your grace so that I would be able. I turned my feet 
to your testimonies, I made haste in this. I made it a matter of urgency. And that then brings us to the third part of our study, verses 61 to 64, where we have some additional matters that are all related to that first thing, but are um, not directly related here to the keeping of the commandments, at least not in the first place. He says in verse 61, the cords of the wicked have bound me. Cords of the wicked have bound me. So again, he's in suffering. This is part of the background of his contemplation of the law of God and his seeking of the law of God here, that the cords of the wicked have bound him. You can uh, get a little more detailed description of this in uh, Psalm 142, 140, verses 4 and 5, where he says, David says, Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from the violent man who hath purposed to overthrow my goings. The proud have hid a snare for me and cords. There's the same word. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. So when he says that the cords of the wicked have bound me, he's talking about the fact that the wicked have set these traps for him and they have ensnared him in their traps. They had taken him like a bird caught in a net. But, he says, in the second part of the verse, I have not forgotten your law. So the two things then stand alongside of each other. You are my portion. I will keep your law. That's one great fact in his life. And the other great fact in his life is the cords of the wicked have bound me. I have not forgotten your law. So the question is, which of these two great facts has the greatest influence in his life? Which is more important to him? And clearly the one that's having the most influence in his life is not that the cords of the wicked have bound him, but rather that the Lord is his portion. The cords of the wicked wicked binding him, in fact, is due to the fact that the Lord is his portion. And he recognizes that fact and he responds to that fact by saying, of whatever the wicked may do to me, however they may bind me with their cords, still the Lord is my portion. And I will not and have not forgotten his law. Now in in verse 62, then, you have a little bit of a change, a very important change here. Notice as you look at the verses preceding that the tenses are all past or present. Everything's past or present in verses uh, 57 to 61. And in the Hebrew, that's the perfect. But here in verse 62, the tense is future, and it's the one verse in this section which has the imperfect form of the Hebrew verb. So everything else is in the perfect form. This one's in the imperfect form. 
And I think the idea is rightly uh, translated here as a future. So he first talks about the present and past effect of the wicked on him. I have not forgotten your law. But then he goes on and he says, really, and I won't either. At midnight, I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. I will continue to keep your law and I will continue to give thanks to you for those righteous judgments which you have given me. These, the same ideas present here that we saw in the previous stanza, that these judgments are reason for thankfulness. They are his guide. They are the place of safety for him. They are the way where he walks because of the grace of God to him in answering his uh, petitions, his entreaty with his favor. And so he will rise at midnight. Notice again the reference to the night here, just as in the previous stanza. He will rise at midnight to give thanks to the Lord for his righteous judgments. So that's another aspect that he deals with here in this setting. The Lord is my portion. First is, because the Lord is my portion, the bands of the wicked have bound me. The cords of the wicked have bound me. The second is, then, at midnight I will rise to give thanks to you, whatever the wicked may do to me, because you are my portion. And then the third aspect is in verse 63, I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. So he looks beyond himself. He looks to others whose portion also is the Lord and who, because their portion is the Lord, fear him and keep his precepts. And he says, there are the people I want to be with. They are the excellent of the earth, in whom is all my delight. I will seek them, I will be a companion of them. I don't want any part of this world and of the wicked men of this world. There my fellowship will be, there my joy will be. I want to be among those who, whose portion is the Lord, and who along with me keep his precepts. Now, verse 64, I think, is a conclusion. And it's a conclusion in this way that he says, uh, these are two things that I want to say in order to bring my discussion of this uh, subject of the Lord being my portion to a close. The first of them is, the earth, O Lord, is full of your loving kindness or your mercy. The earth, O Lord, is full of your loving kindness. And that in, in this, this passage is very striking. Remember, he's got these two things set alongside of each other. You are my portion. The cords of the wicked have bound me. And now he looks around him at the whole earth. And what does he see? He doesn't see his trouble. He doesn't see his affliction. He doesn't see his enemies. He sees the loving kindness of the Lord. The earth is full of your loving kindness. 
very remarkable confession in the circumstances. When do, when do we react this way to trouble? Look at our troubles and we start to complain, we start to feel sorry for ourselves, we start to uh, concentrate all our attention on those troubles, and we forget to look at the whole picture, at the earth itself, and to confess with the psalmist, the earth is full of your loving kindness. The whole creation manifests to him the loving kindness of his God. He sees the Lord's gracious and faithful dealings with him in that creation, even while his enemies are persecuting him. And the second thing, the second thing he says by way of conclusion is, teach me your statutes. I've kept them, I want to keep them, I've entreated the Lord for them, I've made haste and delayed not to keep them. But teach me anyway. I want to be taught. This is the great way of gratitude. This is the way of love for my God. Teach me your statutes. And again, we can talk about our Savior in this uh, matter. The cords of the wicked literally bound him in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he remained steadfast in obedience. He did not let them shake him from that way. The cords of the wicked have bound me, he would say, but I have not forgotten your law. He was persistent in spite of the opposition of his enemies in that way of obedience. The statutes of the Lord were his song in the house of his pilgrimage. And we walk in his way, follow him in that same way by faith. It's because of him that we can say, you are my portion, O Lord. And because of him that we can say, I have kept your commandments. May the Lord give us a blessing from his word.